Well, hey, uh, today we are starting a new series, and I'll confess that today's message apparently is longer than I thought, because it was still long, but it was going to be way longer than it actually was, so we're doing a part one and part two out of this, and I didn't want to be, you know, still talking when y'all came in, like if I'd have been talking to the first service, that would have been really awkward, so come on back next week, Um, we'll see if we can get to all the places that you're like, how come you didn't talk about that? I probably won't, but you know, you never know. We'll see. Now, I want to start this morning um, by asking a question. Uh, Have you ever been let down? Have you ever been let down in your life before? Now, those of you who are sports fans, maybe maybe too much of a sports fan like myself, uh, you immediately think of, oh yeah, my Minnesota Vikings, oh yeah, kings of letting... Me down. Did you hear the one about the, uh, the guy that wanted Minnesota Vikings players to be his pallbearers? Do you know why? So that they could let him down one more time. Yeah. I resemble that remark. Yeah. At least as Suns fans, we have a little bit of hope right now, but after last year's disappointment, it's a little hard to hope, but let's hope we're not let down. Um, To get off the sports metaphors, I was thinking of some other letdowns. Um, My wife Heidi's a real estate agent, and so we hear about real estate letdowns. Um, Ever been in a situation where you made an offer to buy a house, or maybe you put a deposit down or did an application for an apartment, whatever it is, you wanted that place, you wanted that house, or maybe you thought you had your house sold until the inspection happens, and then, ah, oh, it didn't work out, and you feel let down. Anybody ever happen that way? Yeah, that can be really um, a frustrating letdown. And, and, you know, letdown, being let down is actually a part of the Easter story, actually before Easter, anyway. Um, you think about the followers of Jesus, you know, his disciples, and how let down they would have felt. Last Sunday, we celebrate Easter, the resurrection, but I think sometimes we just blow right past, okay, that was Sunday. What was the first day, Friday, and what was Saturday like? What, what were those moments before they knew Jesus rose from the dead? Can you imagine how let down his disciples felt? I mean, for three years, they'd done life with him, been with him face-to-face, they had gotten their hopes up. They couldn't wait to see, you know, how's Jesus going to change everything in our world? He's, he's the Messiah. He's the one. Then Friday hits and he dies. Like their faith, their hopes would have been shattered. I mean, just if you try to even imagine that Friday night, Saturday night, after the shocking crucifixion and death of Jesus, they would have been I'm sure, sleepless nights, feeling that let down, wondering, wow, was everything that I believed a lie? Was this Jesus guy just another man who claimed to be the Messiah and then just like all those that claimed that before him, he ends up dead at the hands of our oppressors? Am I a fool? Did I get played? Did I get played like an idiot? And where are you, God? What happened? God, are, maybe some of them even wonder, God, are you even real? You think any of those thoughts maybe cross their minds in those moments? See, I don't find it hard to believe that maybe those thoughts did cross those disciples' minds. Because the truth is, I know that I've had episodes in my life where I've felt that way. And maybe you have too. 
maybe you've had one of those experiences where it's the middle of the night, you wake up, you stare into the darkness, and fear starts to course through your veins, and, and maybe for a moment you wonder, what if? What if Christianity isn't the truth? What if Jesus isn't real? I mean, what if after you die, like, that's it? There's nothing. It's, it's over, and in those moments, fear can grip us for a moment or maybe longer. And so we're in the beginning of a series of messages that we are calling Faith, I Doubt It. Faith, question mark, I, I doubt it. And, and to get in today's theme, what we're going to do is go back, look at the resurrection, and we're going to keep coming back to a character who is actually known for his doubts around the resurrection. But let me set that up in case you're not familiar with the story. What's happened is that Jesus was put on a cross and he dies, and like I said, his followers had to be super let down. Um, he's put in a grave, that's Friday and Saturday, but um, the Gospels tell us on the third day, on Sunday, he rises from the dead. And he first appears, according to the scriptures, to, to Mary Magdalene and to a group of women on Easter morning, and then he spends the afternoon of his resurrection day on a seven-mile incognito hike with two disciples. They don't even realize it's Jesus until the end, where like suddenly he practices a new magic trick where like, poof, he disappears, or poof, he reappears. Um, and so that's resurrection day, pretty amazing. But then that night, that night... The disciples are all together. Um, the 12 have now become the 11 because of Judas. And they're not all together. They're, a bunch of them are together. And the Bible says they'd locked the doors because they were still afraid of the people who had crucified Jesus. And suddenly, here he goes again, poof, Jesus appears in the room. And all of their letdown was suddenly upside down because they had to have been overcome with joy. Can you imagine? From the letdown to celebration, whoa, 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 it's true. Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead. He's alive. It didn't have been an amazing moment. But, but one of them was missing. One of the disciples wasn't there. Anybody know his name? Thomas, yes, Thomas. And anybody know his nickname? What he got nicknamed? Yes, <laughs> Doubting Thomas became his nickname. And all throughout history, this disciple of Jesus has become known as Doubting Thomas. Um, but if we're honest, I think some of us could go, yeah, I, I relate a little bit to Thomas. Because for him, if he didn't, he didn't believe it. He didn't believe it if he didn't see it, Right? Some of us go, mm, I get that, right? Look at John chapter 20, verse 24, starts out this way. Uh, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, by the way, sometimes if you're in your small groups or a Bible study and you're like reading through and you, you're the one that gets voluntold to read the scripture that day, anybody been in that situation? You get to a name and you're like, uh, I don't know this name. And how many of you just try to bluff your way through it? Yeah, most of us, yeah, I usually just even skip over it or I give initials. It's my kind of strategy, so there you go. But I want to help you with this one. I'm going to give you a little pronunciation lesson here, right? Um, uh, everybody say Didymus. Doesn't that sound like a bad name for a rapper or something? Yeah, like just Didymus, right? Okay, so Didymus 
Uh, here we go, verse 24. Thomas, also known as Didymus, which other translations tell us means the twin, but he was one of the 12, which is now the 11, um, but he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now, put yourself in Thomas's shoes here. He's probably a little irritated and frustrated by this deal. He actually, next sentence here, he gets a little sarcastic with them. So I guess now we have sarcastic doubting Thomas. He says this, he said to them, Thomas said, unless, guys, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side where Jesus was pierced, if I put my hand in... Unless that happens, I will not believe. Now, at first blush, sounds a little harsh, right? It's a little strong. But if we stop and think about this for a little bit, I'm curious how many of us, if we're honest, we would have to go, you know what? I've had some spiritual doubts that at least some point in my life. Raise your hand, raise your hand if you've had spiritual doubts. Okay, um, those of you perfect people with your hands down, you can go polish your halo while I finish talking to the rest of us this morning. Um, but it's true because, I, listen, I know at some point, uh, all of us have, have prayed some prayer that, that we believed God could and we thought God would, but then he didn't, and then boom, we get bombarded with doubt. Like, why didn't God do this? Why wouldn't he answer or intervene in that? Or maybe, for some of us uh, that are adults, maybe your story was that you were growing up, maybe in a church or in a Christian family, or some way, somehow, you had some kind of faith, and it was a simple faith in God, but then you go to freshman philosophy or biology or literature class, and and some professor says, ah, this God stuff didn't really happen. And boom, you start to wonder, well, is this real? I mean, am I just carrying my parents' faith or is this my faith? And floods of doubt start to overwhelm. It happens all the time. It's pretty normal. Or maybe you were somebody that you believed in God, you had a strong faith in God, but then something really bad happened that affected you, it happened to you, or happened to someone that you love, and you reasonably thought and wondered, well, listen, if God is good, why did he let that happen? I mean, if God is, you know, sovereign, if God is powerful, all-powerful, why didn't he stop it? Things like, you know, divorce, death, scandals, failure, these things can trigger these real authentic, understandable, raw questions. And in moments like that, I think we can relate real quickly to Thomas, where something inside of us gets shaken and we become overwhelmed by our doubts. Can I tell you my not-so-secret secret? Yeah. I, I have doubts. I have doubts. And I'm the guy who spent most of my life thinking and reading and teaching people about God, right? I grew up in the church. 
I went to a Christian college. I started working as a youth pastor when I was 20 years old. Those poor teenagers, holy cow. Um, (laughs) I played in a Christian band. I did trips to other countries to tell people about Jesus. I've preached to thousands of people. I've seen miracles, legitimate, verifiable miracles. Most of my life, I've walked the straight and narrow. I'm a pastor, for crying out loud, and I have doubts. I have doubts. I thought, okay, well, I need to be specific about at least one that's not, you know, fluffy. So can, can I admit one of my doubts to you, Hope family, um, has to do with the afterlife. And sometimes I'll admit that when I, sometimes when I think about the afterlife, there's a part of me thinks that, hey, if this all turns out to be true, that the afterlife, the angels are singing and death is defeated. And like the old hymn says, the roll is called up yonder and there I am. <sighs> if that happens, there's a part of me that might be kind of surprised, like, well, what do you know? This, this is true after all. <laughs> um, so yes, I do, I believe it, but sometimes I have doubts. And here at Hope, um, a church where we proclaim and remind ourselves um, there are no perfect people, At a church like that, is it okay if we ask questions, if we consider objections, if we wonder about stuff out loud? Okay, try over here. Is it okay if we wonder about questions out loud? Is that okay? This side of the room's in. Okay, good. Um, See, here at Hope, what I want to make sure we don't do, we we don't want to pretend that we are split into two camps, right? There's the inferiors who doubt, and there's the superiors who don't. Right, Because, I mean, think about this. Is it possible, is it maybe even rational to have faith in the presence of doubt, to have both faith and doubt at the same time? Because I know it's true for me. I do have doubt. I do have doubts, but I also have faith too. I mean, I have bet my life, my life's work, my life's energy on having a real faith in Jesus. So for me, it is a both and deal. There's a, um, there's a book by uh, John Ortberg with the not very catchy title, Faith and Doubt. <laughs> um, and he says, he says that the most important word is, in this title, the most important word is the word right in the middle, and, and. Because most of the honest people I know are a mix of the two, faith and doubt. In fact, um, and this is something we'll be discussing in our small groups this week, many times um, we know that it can be, like doubt can be this nagging, irritating voice that we'd rather silence or push away, but I echo Ortberg's question when he asks, is it possible that doubt might be one of those unwelcome guests of life that is sometimes in the right circumstances good for you? Like, might doubt push us toward studying or taking a course like the Alpha course um, about studying and digging deeper and discussing where the end result could end up being a stronger faith, where doubt ends up helping us, not because we squashed it, not because we pushed it away, but because we didn't ignore it or run for it or pretend that we don't have doubts. You know, maybe even doubt could help us develop a deeper trust in God and Maybe even the end result would be that we have more confidence in what we hopefully believe that it 
actually could be true. See, maybe instead of pretending that we don't have doubt, maybe we don't need to hide from doubt. Which, by the way, would just be a consistent way of living. It'd be honest and consistent because, again, the honest truth is that every single one of us is a mixture of faith and doubt. Faith and doubt. I mean, just think back to Thomas, faith and doubt, right? Faith and doubt. I, I bet that when Thomas had Jesus with him before the crucifixion, I bet he's just like we are when we feel God's presence, right? You know, sometimes we get absolutely convinced. Oh, I, I feel God's presence. I'm convinced. I'm confident that God is real, that he's working on our behalf, and that no matter what I face, that, that I can fully trust God to take care of me. That's the, ooh, my faith feels strong. Thomas had that, I bet. But then maybe something happens that's confusing, or honestly, maybe for no discernible reason at all, we get plagued by doubt. Suddenly, I'm doubting Doug, right? Just kind of nips at our heels, lurks in the background. Maybe it's the kind of doubt that feels like it's going to overwhelm us and sweep every last part of our faith away. And hear me, Hope family. In those kinds of times of doubt, one of the main things that we need when those adults doubts, when those doubts are coming at us, we need a place and a people who will not judge, shame, or abandon us, or fix us. We need others to be with us. To be with us. See, friends, when, when doubt comes into someone's life, and maybe they show up here, and maybe they voice their honest doubts, will we continue to be a place, and I think we are this place, but I want to specifically say it, can we be a place, can we be a place that doesn't rush in too quickly with answers, oh, I know the answer to that, no, 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 we're willing to sit, to listen, to honor them, and to love, to love people without rushing in too soon to fix it or try to explain it. Sometimes we don't need it instant, like right away. It's actually not helpful right away. I mean, think about Thomas, right? He had to wait. Anybody, how, how many days did he have to wait before Jesus reappeared and he saw him? Anybody know? Eight days. <laughs> Eight days. What? But he made a really good decision. Check this out. He had doubts. He even voiced his doubts to the other disciples. Probably they were not real excited about how his sarcasm went, Right? But he didn't withdraw. He still hung around the other disciples, which tells us it's really good for us to be around other people when we are in our pain, when we are in our doubt. It's good to be around people and not withdraw. Actually, being with other people can help soothe the pain because then we know that we are not alone no matter what we're facing, which can actually start to heal our hearts even when our doubts remain. So don't isolate. You feel doubt? Don't isolate, don't run away. See, it's my prayer that here at Hope, we continue to love others as they are. And so if, if, if they are in doubt for eight, eight days or eight weeks or eight months or eight years, we're gonna accept people as they are and let them know that there's a place for them in our church community, in our church family, because nobody stands alone and everyone belongs. And here at Hope, you can come as you are. 
no matter what the reason is for the doubts that we feel or others feel, it's important, number one, yeah, like I was just saying, don't isolate, right? But number two, it's important for us to be honest and real about our doubts. It's important for us to be honest and real. Because too often we kind of go to one end of the spectrum or the other, right? Um, And by the way, some of you are aware that many Christians in our day and age here in the U.S. anyways um, are deconstructing their faith. And I don't have time to really get into it this morning, but in one of the next couple of messages in this series, I want to offer a perspective on deconstruction. Because while there are some pastors that think, you know, oh, deconstructing your faith is terrible, that it's wrong... And by the way, sometimes I think there are ways to deconstruct that are unhealthy, so I know that that's true. Um, I also know from personal experience that deconstructing faith can, can actually be done in healthy ways and can actually, like it has for me, lead to a more biblical faith in Jesus. So back to faith and doubt in this continuum. I want to think about the continuum of faith on the one side and doubt. And and this might be oversimplifying it. Um, But I think that there are two extremes that we can get to when we're talking about faith and doubt. In fact, I'm going to call one uh, extreme hyper-faith. And I'm going to call the other extreme hyper-doubt. Hyper-faith and hyper-doubt. So first, um, hyper-faith is where we would just pretend that we have no doubts. We Hope, by pretending that we have no doubts, that maybe those doubts we do have will just vanish, maybe go away. Sure, they nod us for a little while, but if we just pretend that they're not there, maybe they'll leave us alone. So this side is hyperfaith. We fake it. We fake it. Some people on that hyperfaith side, because doubt seems really scary, they go find a church or a preacher or a theological system that that exudes perfect confidence, memorable cliches, and enough acronyms, alliterations, um, and slogans to make us think, oh yes, 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 this is the way to a doubt-free existence. I just need somebody to tell me what to think and feed me an airtight theological system. Um, And... By the way, that formula, it's very popular. It actually works until it doesn't. But we, we, um, again, we have some family members that once were in the faith and um, they were in that airtight end of things. Uh, But when things like logic and even trying to compare scripture to line up with the theological airtight system they were being drilled with, they eventually walked away and now would call themselves, they went from that hyper faith side to the hyper doubt and would even call themselves now atheists and they'd been discipled really well. They know the Bible better than many of us. But the way it was presented, that hyper faith side, um, was kind of a, hey, fake it till you make it, right? Fake it till you make it, which, by the way, is pretending. It's actually lying. Faking it would be lying, and I just don't think that's a strategy that Jesus would endorse, just saying. But that pretending side, we're going to call that hyper-faith. And on the other hand, we have the hyper-doubt side, which are Christians sometimes who are really struggling with doubt and just kind of start with doubt on everything all the way to really atheists would be on that hyper-doubt camp as well. And while I would rather be around the people on the doubt side of things than the fake hyper-faith side, because at least these folks are being honest, 
Um, I do know that, that, that there are people that carry doubt to the extreme in, in ways that embrace their doubt in a way that defines them and becomes their identity, um, where they might sound like, oh, well, you know, you can never know anything. Who's to say what we could actually know about God, what we could actually know about really anything? Uh, I mean, there's no scientific evidence of God's existence for us to reliably depend on. Um, there's no real way for us to know what truth is. So let's just kind of float along and be consumed by our doubt, unanchored, untethered to anything. It's just the way to be. So, friends, hyper faith and hyper doubt, living in either of those extremes, is not the goal if we want to find the path of authentic, real faith, one that's worth having. Hyper faith, hyper doubt. We don't want to go to either extreme and live there. Now, Thinking about doubt, though, um, I do think there are some folks that just want to doubt, right? Because in some circles, in some circles, it seems like um, doubting is, you know, more savvy. Like the smart people were, are the total doubters. Um, one brilliant guy, amazing, brilliant mind, uh, British journalist Christopher Hitchens, uh, wrote a book uh, entitled "God is Not Great." <laughs> How Religion Poisons Everything. <laughs> the title pretty much tells you where the book <laughs> goes right there. Um, and, and by the way, he actually makes some really great points. Because religion gone wrong is damaging. And, and, and far too often, that's all that our culture sees when they look at religion or faith or Christianity. They see rightly, they rightly see the sins done by people in the name of their God. And so sometimes these voices we have to consider and listen to uh, for the purpose of repentance, not for the purpose of throwing it all out. Uh, another famous atheist, brilliant mind, Richard Dawkins, um, says this in a book he calls The God Delusion. Um, and I'll just read this these two sentences here. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Just jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, forgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, and I'll just stop right there because after that he gets really hostile. Um, and listen, the point here is not to attack um, doubters or attack atheists. The point is not to argue with them and develop all our apologetics to be able to argue with them. Listen, listen, I want to actually listen to doubters and not just argue with them, partly because, honestly, I know that I have doubts of my own, and partly because I know when, when I'm just trying to win arguments, I know I can turn into an argumentative jerk, and nobody wants to be around me then. Not even me. So, so for me, I don't like books or articles by believers on the one side or doubters on the others. Any book on one side or the other that, that, that makes it sound like the question of God is simple. 
where they make it sound like, you know, anyone with half a brain will agree with them either on the one side or the other, and that people in the other camp are foolish or evil, which is too often where these conversations go, and it's not helpful. Like, insulting intelligent doubters, it's not helpful, because truthfully, many many of these brilliant minds are a gift and a blessing to the world, Honestly, uh, you know, most of us know smart people, intelligent people who don't believe in God. Anybody know a smart person that doesn't believe in God? And if we're honest, we have to go, wow, that person in many ways um, is more thoughtful, more intelligent, wiser than me. Like, I know people like that. Um, but, listen, the, the super intelligent um, atheists for many, many years have predicted the end of God. This is the end of God. This is the end of faith. For centuries, really, have predicted the end of that. Very intelligent people have predicted that that would happen, but it hasn't happened, has it? As wise and smart and intelligent as they are, the predictors keep on dying, and the faith then keeps on spreading, doesn't it? Um, But there are some very intelligent people that live in that hyper-doubt world. Um, And some of us think, wow, I just want to, if I was just smarter, then maybe I could get rid of all the doubts that I have because I could think it through, and then I could have real faith because I could put to rest all of the doubts I have. But it's not about intelligence, friends. It's not about that because, as John Ortberg points out, making the right choices about faith, like making the right, or making good choices for life in general, does not seem to rest primarily on IQ. Smart people mess up as easily as the rest of us. Here's an example, a story that maybe you've heard. Um, Three men in a plane. There's the pilot, there's the Boy Scout, there's the world's smartest man. The engine fails, the plane is going down, but there's only two parachutes. And the world's smartest man says... Ooh, he grabs number one and says, I'm sorry about this, but I'm the smartest man in the world. I have a responsibility to our planet. And he jumps out of the plane. Well, the pilot turns and looks at the Boy Scout, and he tells the boy how, listen, I've already lived a long, long life. It's been very full, and you, my son, you, you have your whole life in front of you, young man. So he tells the Boy Scout to take that last parachute and live well, young man. Boy Scout replies, relax, Captain. The world's smartest man, he just jumped out of the plane with my backpack. (laughs) And friends, (laughs) there's the delayed laughter when you got it, right? Okay, that's good. Um, Friends, listen, our world is full. Sadly, our world is full of smart people jumping out of planes with backpacks, Um, which is maybe why I first... Corinthians 127 says this phrase, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame or confound the seemingly wise. See, ultimately, in God's economy, as valuable as IQ and intelligence are, it's ultimately not about IQ. And making good choices about faith is not exclusively dependent on IQ. This is not to criticize smart people, but those of us that just wish we were smarter because then maybe we could figure it out. It doesn't depend ultimately on that. 
And we can count on this, that sooner or later, um, the metaphorical plane of life is going down and we are all on the same plane of life, smart guys and Boy Scouts alike, and everybody has to jump, everybody has to choose a parachute or a backpack, and none of us will know who has chosen wisely until after we jump. I want to go back for a couple minutes to our story, again, part one of at least two, the story of our disciple Thomas that we're looking at. I want you to remember at the place we left off with Thomas, he's in pain. He's grieving. In fact, I kind of wonder if the reason he wasn't with the other disciples the first time Jesus showed up is that his grief was so strong and so deep that he couldn't bear to be around anyone. Have you ever been in that kind of pain before? So deep that you just couldn't be around anyone right then. And by the way, that's okay. It's actually, there's some good to having some solitude and a bit of solitude can be healthy for a bit. But it is not a permanent way to live life. Like, if you're going through that, take time to mourn, but don't isolate. Don't isolate. And Thomas has the wisdom to know that and so he's come back in his grief, he is staying connected to the other disciples. Even in his doubt, he's connecting to the other disciples. And in verse 26, he says, uh, it says, John 20, uh, verse 26 says, a week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again, and Thomas, this time, was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you which is, you know, kind of nice because, like, if all of a sudden Jesus appeared in the room, I'd be freaking out, so peace be with you. And verse 27, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faceless any longer. Believe, believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord, and my God. My Lord, he says, my Lord and my God. Like this is a declaration of faith in the highest degree. He goes from being let down and doubting to the affirmation in the highest way of who Jesus was. Not only was he convinced, oh my goodness, Jesus is alive, but he was moved beyond that to see that Jesus truly is who he said he was. He is God. And I even love how the interaction between Jesus and Thomas goes. Like Jesus, somehow, right, um, he says to him, okay, listen, bro, go for it. Put your fingers here and there and right. Like Jesus knew, he knew exactly what Thomas had said when he'd been sarcastic uh, with the other disciples a week before. Like, unless I see the nail prints and put my hands in them and the hand in the... Jesus knew he said all that. And don't miss this, don't miss this. Jesus knew sarcastic, doubting Thomas, and still, he didn't yell at him, he didn't shame Thomas, he didn't scold Thomas, he didn't demote him from being one of the disciples. No, 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 instead, Jesus came for Thomas with compassion. I mean, he's direct with him, like, hey, go for it, right here, very direct, doesn't skirt around it, but he came with compassion. Jesus doesn't condemn Thomas, Jesus comes for Thomas. I actually think Jesus here is honoring Thomas. 
Because Thomas didn't try to fake it till he made it. He was hurt. He spoke truthfully from his heart. And eventually Jesus came for him. So I kind of think that instead of the moniker Doubting Thomas, maybe we need to call him Honest Thomas. Honest Thomas. And we're going to pick up the story of Thomas next week because there is much, much more. Um, I'm going to ask you to give me about, I'll be honest, seven or eight minutes here um, to do just some application um, and, and a little bit of an invitation here. Um, so what about us? Out of this story, what are some of the things that we can take away from this part one story of Thomas? Um, well, I think that this story is an invitation to at least three things. One, it's an invitation for us to be honest, like to be honest about your doubts, to be honest to yourself, to be honest with God, because by the way, he knows anyway. So just, right, be honest, be honest, it's okay. That's number one. And two, number two, um, maybe we can find an invitation where we wonder how doubt could possibly even strengthen our faith, Right? Because if that's true, then you don't have to run from your doubts or fear them, that you can press in and fearlessly trust that you can follow Jesus just as you are in this moment, even if you don't have it all sorted out yet. You can still love God, love people, do the best you know, even when all your questions aren't settled, you still have the humility to keep learning and growing, even when you have doubts, like, 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 Take this time to press in, to learn, decide to, to discuss and to ask, like make a commitment to grow. Um, we'll talk about deconstruction again in a couple of weeks, but there are healthy ways to deconstruct because some of the stuff you might believe about God that you're doubting isn't true of him anyway. <laughs> so it would be good. So just, you know, commit to grow. I mean, jump into Alpha, a great opportunity to grow. So it could actually strengthen our faith. And the third invitation in the part one of this story of Thomas is, is this, an invitation to lean in to healthy community, authentic, real community. I mean, look at what Thomas did. He made that good decision. He, he didn't run away. He came back in his doubts. He was with the other disciples, even when he was doubting and said some pretty sarcastic stuff. He stayed connected. And like Thomas, if you're going through a season like that, don't let your doubts keep you from gathering with the people of God. Um, because really, you need to be here. You need to be in your small group. Um, and hear me, we need you here. We need you here. Because all of us are a mixture of faith and doubt. We need each other. In fact, especially for those of you that maybe aren't dealing with uh, a lot of doubt right now, um, let's make sure that we continue as a church family to hold high the value of being a safe place for people who are struggling and deconstructing uh, both here in our small groups or Bible studies that you're in. Um, be a safe place because some people go, well, what, I, I can never answer any questions. I just have to sit. Well, uh, sometimes there's a place for answers, but oftentimes we're way too quick to go there. So when somebody expresses an honest doubt, we need to practice a, a principle that some describe as spiritual consent, right? So 
Spiritual consent is simply this. Before you offer the answer or the advice to someone, we ask if we can offer the advice rather than just jumping in with, you know, the brilliant idea of how we can help fix their theology. Instead, somebody voices a question or a doubt, we just ask, you know, after we listen a long time, ask, um, are you inviting me to, you know? And by the way, sometimes they're not. And in that moment especially, consent matters. And so honoring their need to simply be heard honors them and honors their story. So we practice spiritual consent. We don't barge through the door without knocking. <laughs> it's practicing the way of Jesus when we just honor people. And maybe say, hey, can I share something with you? And if they say, nah, I'm not ready, then hey, awesome, no problem. I'm still here for you, right? Spiritual consent. So again, three invitations. Be honest. Wonder about how doubt might actually strengthen our faith. The third one, to lean into healthy community. Um, and as we close, if, if you are here and you're maybe even on the fence kind of with your spiritual journey um, with, with God, you're kind of on the fence, uh, I'm not gonna lie. Um, t- t- <laughs> Deciding to lean into or to be open to faith, even while you still have huge doubts and unanswered questions, deciding to move toward faith can, can be a difficult decision. Um, have any of you heard of Pascal's wager? Um, some of you. Pascal was a French philosopher, and basically, um, I'm going to butcher this, but basically he said, listen, here's the deal. If God exists and you believe in him, then living his way, life is just better here on earth if you live his way. And then when you die, the upside is tremendous, right? There's eternal life, there's heaven, all that, right? But the other side, if God is not real and you still believed, then when you die, well, there's nothing there anyway and you haven't really lost much, have you? So he would say on the wager here, bet on God and trust his way. There's far more to gain if you're right and far more to lose if you don't. (laughs) Here's my uh, dumb guy summary of a great philosopher. I say it this way. (laughs) Choose Jesus, choose faith. What do you really have to lose? I think that's a pretty good wager actually, isn't it? Pretty good wager. As the worship team comes, Um, I'm aware that in the room here, there may be some of us who recognize that I'm trying to figure out where to go with this faith thing, and I want to lean into faith, but I got all these doubts, and I would just repeat (laughs) the wager, seriously, what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? Maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you're feeling lost or hurting or filled with doubt and you're not sure where you stand with God or maybe something in your history brought up all kinds of pain and questions. I get it. I get it. But friends, Jesus came, gave his life for you, and he was then raised from the dead so that anyone, and this includes you, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus could become a child of God. Anyone who calls on his name, trusts in Jesus, Becomes a child of God. And and none of us are here this morning by accident. Um, And for some of us, you might be here for this reason today. You're here for the reason of uh, it's time. It's time for you to take that next step in your faith in Christ. 
Maybe you thought, oh, I got to sort out all my questions before I can become a follower of Jesus, but you don't. You don't. You can come as you are, all your mess, all your questions, all your doubt. And today could be the day that you say, okay, I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to give my life to Jesus. I come as I am, full of doubts, but wanting faith. I want to follow Jesus. And I want to give us an opportunity to do that this morning. Um, And in a moment, we'll pray. But let's just all bow our heads, close our eyes. Um, And this is a time to make this decision. With nobody looking around, I'm looking around, but nobody else looking around. Um, If you want to say yes to Jesus, you've never made that commitment to follow Jesus, but you want to make that decision to follow Jesus this morning, um, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and make eye contact with me right now. Just raise your hand up high if you're ready to make that decision. I see that. Yeah, awesome, awesome. All right. Um, I want to pray with, uh, with those that raise their hands to say yes to following Jesus. In fact, what we do here is that everybody prays out loud together as an encouragement for those who are taking this huge step of making this decision today. So let's, let's pray this out loud, everybody together. Jesus, I need you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross. I ask you to forgive my sins, to wash me clean. Thank you for forgiving me. I ask for you to give me a new heart. I choose now to follow you. Thank you for new life and a new beginning in you. Amen. Amen. Hey, Hope family, we had somebody this morning that that prayed to start a relationship with Jesus. Can we celebrate with them like the angels are celebrating in heaven right now? Amen. Will you stand with me? to my new friend here who just prayed this morning. There's a prayer team in the back that when we dismiss, would love to talk with you, pray with you. And if you're on the prayer team, um, you can head back there as well. They just wanna pray with you, give you a Bible and help you get your next step started on this relationship with Jesus. So when we dismiss, we just would love to meet you back there. Let me pray over all of us. Father, I pray this morning for courage and for those in this room who have not yet to start um, their journey with you. I pray that you would give them courage. Um, Those that have not yet said yes to you, that as we get ready to leave, maybe they would talk to the person that they came with, or they'd have the courage to connect with one of our team in the prayer corner, the back wall, that they would make that commitment to you and start that relationship with you today. And, And Father, I thank you that you meet all of us exactly where we are, every one of us. So many of us this morning have places in our life where we need to trust you and maybe it feels scary and we have doubts and we need you to show up somewhere in our life. So God, will you, especially in the areas for my brothers and sisters here where where we need you to show up and maybe we have fears and doubts, will you meet us? Will you 
come for us, just like you came for Thomas. Will you come for us with compassion and strengthen our connection to you? Jesus, thank you that in our faith, in our doubt, you come for us again and again and again. And as we sing now, we proclaim that you are good and that you, Jesus, are our king. Amen? Amen. Let's sing, friends.